Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, February 21st, 2021, we continue our new series titled Uncommon Joy, the Book of Philippians. Today's sermon, Love Compels, will be taught to us by Pastor Jeff Stevens out of Philippians chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. Enjoy. Man, this book, um, Philippians, this letter, is incredible. And I think we're going to see a lot, of, a lot of turns in this thing that just in, leave us encouraged. And today is one of those messages. I hope that you walk away today just encouraged with the gospel of Jesus Christ and to see the beauty and the loveliness of Christ uh, in these words. Uh, today's message is, is titled, Love Compels. Love ultimately compels love. And it's God's love that compels this love. It's God's love that compels the gospel. I know in, in, in weeks, years, whatever past, I've shared with you guys uh, some of my own uh, difficulties for desiring to share uh, the gospel. I've joked when I was in corporate America about my travels. When I would get on an airplane, you know, it becomes how quick can I get my, my headset on so that I don't have to talk to people. Right? It's that moment where I just want to be in this, this steel s- sphere, cylinder, whatever it is, and I don't want to have to talk or encounter people. Sometime right after we just moved here in 2013, I was on a business trip and I had to fly back to California. And uh, I was flying into Ontario, California um, for a meeting with a president of one of the major universities there. And I flew out in the morning, and of course, as typical, I'm rushing, I'm rushing, I'm rushing, because I, if you don't know, I am always late. And so, uh, as I rushed and I rushed, I got onto the plane last minute, I got off the plane in barely enough time to go get a rental car so that I could then go uh, and, uh, and meet uh, in this meeting. But of course, along the way, uh, a restroom break was not something that I had taken. And I was dancing as I'm working my way through. And I'm finding myself finally in the rental car and I'm finding myself driving down the road and I'm like, I just, I have to pull over, I have to find. So of course I search for a McDonald's. It's supposed to be the cleanest restroom. Not always the case, but going to a McDonald's and I pull up to the McDonald's and I'm, I'm running out of time. I'm supposed to be at this meeting. I'm trying to get there, but I'm zipping in to this McDonald's. And there as I'm walking in is a young man, a young boy, actually. And you could obviously tell that this young boy was, in fact, homeless. And as he looked at me and he says, sir, he says, would you be willing to give me some money so I could buy some food? Man, this is not the obstacle that I was looking for right now. I stared at this young man who, honestly, you can picture it as he's, he's dirty. He's filthy. You can smell him from 15, 20 feet away. This is a true homeless person. And he says to me, if you could just give me a, a few dollars so that I could buy some food. I looked at him and I said, I will buy you whatever you want, but I do have to go to the restroom first. And so I brought him in. It was a little bit drizzly, a little bit rainy morning there in Riverside, California. And as we came in, he stood right there inside the door. I ran to the restroom real quick. I then come back out of the restroom, and the manager of the store is, in fact, already trying to push him out the door. 
I said, oh, no, 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 my guest, I will take care of him. And so we went up, I said, buddy, order whatever you want for as many days as you want. Just order. And he ordered, I ordered a, a, a coffee uh, in that morning. And uh, as I turned to say goodbye to him as he was set with food, feeling that my task was done, he's being fed, and all is well, he looks at me and he says, will you join me? Man, I'm supposed to be at a meeting. This obstacle, this obstacle is now becoming an opportunity. It's an opportunity to sit down and minister to a soul, to share the gospel, to talk and get to know him. I sat down with that young man. His name is Jerome. Jerome was 15 years old at that time. He's never met his father. His mother is a drug addict, and he's been on the streets now for almost a year. It breaks your heart. But as we continued to sit there and talk, and he shared more with me and more with me about his life and his desires to understand why. Why do things happen? Why, why is my life like this? I remember when he looked at me and he says, my biggest question is why would a man like you stop and help a person like me? Because the gospel compels me. Because the love of Christ says that you are created in the image of God. And you need help. And I have what you need. I blew off the president of that university that morning. He got over it. But for hours, I sat and visited with Jerome. We talked about life. We talked about God's creation. We went through God's word, and the gospel was shared. And on that day, Jesus Christ saved Jerome's life. He saved his soul. Jerome says, it's what I've been looking for. I've heard people talk to me about the gospel. I've heard people say to me at the mission, hey, just pray this prayer. And what you're telling me is so radically different. But most of all, it's lived different. Jerome came to know Jesus Christ that day. It may beg the question, who coordinated our meeting? It wasn't me. I didn't, in fact, even want to be there. In my own selfishness, I just wanted to get to my business, my schedule that was at hand. You could ask the question, who saved that boy that day? Not me. But God, through his word, saved that boy that day. I remember as I looked at him and I said, man, I can't leave this boy alone. He has nowhere to go. I started looking on my phone for a church, a church nearby. It popped up this little tiny, this Baptist church. I said, man, it's a Monday morning, let's just go see. Put Jerome in my car. 
I want to remind you again, Jerome did not smell that great. It was a rental car, though, so I'm not over. <laughs> but we, we drove around about 1.7 miles away, whatever it was, right? Drive around the corner to this little Baptist church, has one of those old-fashioned steeples out in front. I'm like, oh, man, parking lot's empty. I go, I look at the front door. The front door says, closed on Mondays. I'm like, oh, man. But there were a couple cars out in the parking lot, so I'm like, maybe someone's here. So I, I beat on the door a little bit, and this lady answers the door. She says, can I help you? She says, we're closed today. And I said, ma'am, I said, I'm from out of town, and I, I've just been sharing the gospel with this young man, Jerome. And he's come to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I said, and I'm from out of town, and I'm just looking for a place that can pour into him, to love him with the gospel. She says, well, she says, why don't you come on in? She says, our pastor's here. He says, usually he's not, but, you know, come on in, and let's, let's, let's see what we can do. Man, it's incredible how God orchestrates things. Jerome is 23 years old today. Jerome is still walking with Jesus Christ. Jerome is considering now that he's graduated from college and that pastor who took him in and took care of him because his mother passed about three months after is considering going to seminary. It's amazing how the gospel can change a life, how the gospel can change a soul. But if you and I ignore the opportunity and see everything as an obstacle, then in fact, God's love does not abound more and more. Last week, or I should say two weeks ago, Bob had this slide it says, as Christ followers, our identity has to be tied to God's agenda. In other words, as a servant, as a saint, we are sharing partners in the ministry. The word that Bob shared was the Greek word koinonia, which means to be a partnership or a fellowship. That fellowship, that partnership expands beyond these doors. It applies to our every single day life. Life often presents opportunity that will beg the question, what ultimately compels the gospel? In other words, where does divine sovereignty and personal responsibility collide? If God is 100% sovereign and he's 100% in control of one's salvation, then what is my job? Why would I take the time if God is the one who's completely in control? But because God's plan is to utilize servants in a partnership by doing God's work. It works this way, as Bob a couple weeks ago touched on Philippians 1, 6, and it says, and I am sure of this, that he, God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is this process of sanctification, this growing in our faith, growing in the grace of God. It is God who began a good work in you, not you who did a good thing. 
It is God working independent of you, saving you. But then he says God completes this work through sanctification, through this partnership. And ultimately, when Christ returns, you will live in a glorified state for all eternity. In fact, God is 100% sovereign. But you and I are yet 100% responsible. In salvation, God is working in us. In sanctification, God is working through you. Do you see the difference? The theological terms for this are imputation and impartation. My salvation is based upon the imputed works and righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is through Christ and through Christ alone that I am saved. Not because of my works or anything that I should boast, but it is him and him alone. But then our sanctification, the way that we grow in grace, the way that we grow in our life as a Christian, is through impartation. These are the qualities that compel a partnership, in fact, is what makes God working through us. A couple weeks ago when Bob kicked off Philippians as a letter of uncommon joy, where we as believers are both servant and saint. Not only a saint by God's decree, by his statement that you are saved, but I am a servant called to action. This joyful partnership in the gospel is that he, God, divinely secured and he, God, will divinely complete until the day he returns. It gives me the greatest of assurance. In this text in Philippians 1, 8 through 11, it says this, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Brothers and sisters, like Paul in that opening verse of verse eight, he yearns for an affection for you. The pastors, the elders of this church yearn for an affection and a love for the congregation that God has brought before us so that we together as a family would grow in his grace. That we would grow in an understanding of who Jesus Christ is to the point that you can apply it to your everyday life. But today we're going to examine when Paul says, and so be pure and blameless, what does that mean? That's our question today. What does it mean to be pure and blameless? Let me pray. Our Father and our God, Lord, we pray that your word would reveal to us, that your word would compel us, that you would help us to grow in your grace, to grow in a greater understanding of your son, and so be 
pure and blameless on the day of your return. It is in Christ's name we pray, amen. So the question to ask here is, is this blamelessness based upon imputation or impartation? Is this blamelessness given to me through the works and the righteousness of Christ or is it a gift that has been imparted upon me? How does that in fact work? Most evangelicals speak of righteousness, your salvation being imputed, given to you rather than imparted. To impute is to credit something or to give an account of another. Imputation of righteousness is what's clearly taught in passages. Romans 4.3, we see it here. It says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him, credited to him as righteousness. That imputation, it was given to him, it was credited to him, not because of who Abraham was or what Abraham would do, but because Abraham merely believed It was God who compelled him to believe because it is God who gave him credit and righteousness. The credit or the reckoning that Abraham received was an imputation. It's linked to the act of justification. But the moment a person is born again, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to that sinner's account. You're seen before God as holy and blameless. Jesus Christ not only loves you as a believer, he likes you. If he were sitting here, he wouldn't be with his arms crossed and his brow furrowed, and he wouldn't be upset with you because he would know that you are holy and blameless because of his works and his righteousness. The word impart means to give or convey or to grant Impartation, then, is the act of giving or granting something. A lot of things in Scripture, in fact, are God giving us or empowering us to do something, an action. Love compels an action. In fact, spiritual gifts are imparted. We see in Romans 1.11, it says, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. As a spiritual gift, he gives you the strength to go forward. Some translations of impartation might be the word share or um, as a replacement for imparting. The message of the gospel like on that day with Jerome, is an impartation. I'm imparting the gospel to Jerome because of the gospel that is in me. 1 Thessalonians 2.8 says this, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share, impart, to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. In a short period of time in a McDonald's restaurant, a 15-year-old boy became incredibly dear to me. His story crushed me, it broke my heart. But the love of Christ compels me to share the love of the gospel. 
we also see material goods. Those things that we call assets, those things that we call money, those things parked in our driveway, those boats that we pull kids around with, all these things are material goods that are imparted to us from God. Ephesians 4.28 says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share or to impart with anyone in need. God had imparted me wealth that allowed me to take him in and feed him whatever he wanted. He could have bought a month's worth of food. I'd have been glad to pay for it. Love, in fact, compels. Love, in fact, reveals. We start to understand that where our heart is, there is our treasure. Wisdom is imparted. Proverbs 29.15 tells us about the discipline of those of a child. It says the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. You see, if you don't give the rod and the reproof and the wisdom of God, then you're left aimless. In Jerome's case, homeless. He didn't know his father. His mother was a drug addict. It brought shame to his household. But like Jerome that day, Jerome's salvation that day is based upon God and by God alone. Nothing your mom has done gives you ever the option to dishonor her. This shocked Jerome when he was explaining his mother to me. And I said, you know, no matter what your mom does, never does it ever negate your responsibility to honor her. You see, God's word works that way as a double-edged sword. Just like we would say, husbands, if you are not loving your wives as Christ loves the church, wives, it does not give you permission to disrespect. Or husbands, if you are loving your wives and your wives are not respecting you, it does not give you permission to stop loving Children, you must honor and obey your parents. Even if they exasperate or provoke you to anger, it is still your responsibility in accordance to God's word to honor and obey. God's word works this way. Wisdom is the right use or exercise of knowledge. This text today is about impartation. God has imparted himself to us. And it is that love that he has imparted that compels us forward. Philippians 1.9, our text today says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. You see, love compels growth. It has to become abounding more and more. In verse eight, right, the contextual pronoun here, the your love is the possession of the pronoun you. It's pushing this on you as a believer. 
It's saying your love. This is about you and me. It's the love that was imparted to you. It's the gift that God gave you. That you would abound, that you would grow in knowledge and discernment. In other words, you'd have the right application of his word at the right time. I hear many brothers and sisters say to me all the time, I'm still a work in progress, and when God gets me to that point, then I really want to go out and share the gospel. No. You are empowered with the gospel, and you must go and share the gospel. You are adequately prepared for each moment that God will bring before you. Stop thinking that God is preparing you for something great in the future. God has adequately prepared you and me with the gospel of Jesus Christ in this moment. This is what the gospel compels in us. It is what shows us in verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent. You have to show the excellency of Christ. And so, by this, this excellence, be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. You see, the gospel in you is a moral proof. It reveals, love reveals the gospel of Jesus Christ indwelling in you. If it doesn't push you to share the gospel, then I'm gonna ask you, brother or sister, to examine yourself and determine whether the faith of God is in you at all. This approved excellence to the day of Christ, his second coming, his imminent return. We must always be prepared for Christ to return today, but we must always be compelled by the gospel as if he's not coming back for a thousand years. I don't know when Christ is going to return, but I wait for him imminently today but that should not stop me from sharing the gospel with a stranger at a McDonald's in Riverside, California, or anywhere. Philippians 1.6, when he says that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion of the day of Christ, this is also known to us as the perseverance of the saints. He's removed all the fear. He's removed the thought that I won't be with him. And he's given you blessed assurance that says risk it all. Spend and be spent. Everything that you encounter, every moment that you're entrusted to his glory, to his honor, this is what the gospel compels in us. This impartation of Jesus' wisdom to affect a real moral change in our life. We're gonna see more of this in the weeks to come in Philippians. But how do we experience a growth in knowledge and discernment? How do we do that? James puts it this way. James 1, two through five says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Sounds like pure and blameless, right? Lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach 
and it will be given to him. Ask the Lord for wisdom. You see, what James is talking about here is this trial. He's talking about this testing. He's using the language of a smelter, of a, a worker with maybe silver. And he's boiling the silver in a giant vat. And he's boiling all the impurities up to the surface. And he skims all the impurities off, making it grow in its steadfastness. And the ultimate test of the smelter is to build a scaffold and to get up over the, the vat of silver and to look down into the silver. And the purity of the silver is based upon the standard. Here's the standard. When the smelter, who is Jesus, stands over the vat of silver, how clear is the picture of Jesus in the silver in reflection? Jesus Christ is transforming you and me into the image of himself. He is the standard. Brothers and sisters, as parents, I'm going to give you a little tip here. When your kids look at you and they say, oh, mom, dad, you're making a big deal out of nothing. You did the same thing when you were our age. Look them square in the eyes and make sure they hear you loud and clear. I'm not the standard. Jesus Christ is. We are being conformed to the image of him, not to our own unique personalities, not to my autonomy and my personal desires, but I am to be used as a vessel to the glory of Jesus Christ in everything. It's a test, like a 15-year-old boy in front of a McDonald's. It's faith to use the wisdom of God to share the gospel because it is to be found pure and blameless because of Christ's work in you. So where do we start? Paul is gonna tell us in Philippians 2 to start this way, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Stop whining about your circumstances. Stop grumbling that you don't have what the Joneses have. Start fixing your eyes in divine contentment on what Jesus Christ has entrusted you with at this moment. This calling to be blameless and innocent, it does not mean sinless. Remove this idea from your thought that one day I will be sinless. You are sinless because of the imputation of Christ's righteousness upon you. But stop thinking that you will become sinless and humble yourself to be on your knees and say, Lord, forgive me for that sin. But don't sin all the more so that grace can abound. Christ has made us his own. He wants us to press on our own. Philippians 3, 11 and 12 says, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. I'm not. But press on to make it my own. This is the pursuit of holiness. Hebrews 12, 14 says to us, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You see, the requirement is the standard. The standard is the perfection of Jesus Christ, and that's the only way you can enter into the kingdom of God. But here, the author of Hebrews is saying, strive for peace with everyone and for holiness. God is calling you to live a life of holiness. 
Because as we pursue love, knowledge, and discernment, we begin to show proof of his excellency, affecting purity and blamelessness so that the day of Christ's return, he finds us as he wants us, dependent upon him. Why do we love? 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. How do we abound and grow in this love? Through knowledge and discernment. 2 Peter 3.18 says, but grow in the grace. Brothers and sisters, we gotta get out of the room of good intentions and we need to step into the room of grace. Be kind to one another, be tenderhearted, forgive as Christ has forgiven you. This growing awareness of God's holiness and our sinful desires. I've shown this chart before, but this chart shows the drastic difference that when you came to Christ, at the moment of your conversion, you began the sanctification process and you began growing in the awareness of God's holiness while you simultaneously grew and keep growing in the awareness of your sinfulness. And the cross becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. This is growing and abounding more and more in the love of Christ, in our dependence upon the works and the righteousness of Jesus Christ on that cross. This is what sets us free. So what does it mean to be pure and blameless? It means to be at the foot of that cross, dependent upon him. He closes in verse 11, he says, filled with the fruit of spirit, or the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, the glory and the praise. The intent of the gospel is that we would grow. Colossians 1, five through six says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. John 15, eight says, by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Brothers and sisters, the gospel should compel you to reveal that you are in fact a follower of Jesus Christ. The fruit is simple. It's the fruit of the spirit. It's one fruit with nine characteristics. If you miss one, you miss them all. The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Nine characteristics, one fruit. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. We have to grow in our awareness of these. It's in summary here that I would say that Philippians 1, verses 1 through 11, Paul's prevailing desire is that the Philippians remain united with him in the grace of God. That their love would flourish and that they would be filled with righteousness. He found great joy in them as mature believers, not struggling doctrinally or morally. He wanted them to share in the fullest measure his deep, confident assurance and expectation that the work of God has begun in them and would one day be perfectly completed when Christ returns. 
Charles Haddon Spurgeon said it this way. He says, when you see no present advantage, like bumping into a homeless kid in front of a McDonald's, walk by faith, not by sight. Do God the honor to trust him when it comes to matters of loss for the sake of this principle. But that which is imparted, that which he has given you, comes with additional reward in the kingdom of heaven. If we live this way, the imparted love of God becomes lived out wisdom in the fruit of the spirit. And it earns the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. You see, in Matthew 25, 21, when his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant, you have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Get this, in uncommon joy. Enter into the joy of your master. Don't miss that point. Enter into the joy of your master by being a servant of Christ. Thankful for your sainthood. I leave you with two points. Number one, love compels. It is God's work in you. Knowledge and discernment applied as wisdom. Excellence, for we are a reflection of him like the smelter. Peace and holiness, without which no one will see the face of God. Love compels joy. For every test is but joy because of the one who sent the test. Point two, love reveals. It is God's work through you. The fruit of righteousness, the proof of the presence of God in you. Glory and praise goes to God. For you and I are only a steward of that which he has given us, that which he has imparted. We're to walk in step with the spirit and reveal God to all whom we encounter, like the Jeromes of the world. And when Christ returns, we will enter his joy for all eternity. But while we are going through these trials of life, consider it pure joy. Our Father and our God, Lord, we come to you as humble servants, asking that you would lead and direct us, that you would direct us in the paths that bring the most glory and honor to you, that you would fill us, Lord, with your grace and your mercy, that, Lord, we would consider you above all things. No matter what our meetings, no matter what the traffic lights of life bring us, no matter what the obstacles, Lord, that we would take every obstacle and use it as an opportunity to reflect your beauty, to reflect your loveliness in uncommon joy. Amen. He is Lord of all. Brothers and sisters, I can't encourage you enough to let your faith be known. You never know when God is going to use you mightily to save a soul, to change a life forever. Not because of you, but because of the love of God and the gospel that is in you compels you to do so. 
Our Heavenly Father, may we as a congregation, may we continue to truly just grow and grow in your grace and your love and a greater and greater understanding of your Son, the very power of the gospel to save the souls of men. Help us, Lord, to do this in everything that we say and do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.